Xcure's uh, podcast, Target Cancer. This is a podcast about health technology and how it's affecting and changing lives for cancer patients. I'm joined today by Mary Elmastri, uh, who's an oncologist from Cedar sinai My name is Mika Newton. I'm the CEO for Xcure's. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a wonderful. Pleasure. So uh, maybe for the audience, can you uh, tell us a little bit about you and your practice and kind of where you work and what you do in oncology? So I actually work at Cedar sinai Tower Hematology Oncology. It's a private practice. Um, it's located in Beverly Hills. Um, I see all blood disorders and all cancers. Um, I came from Stanford. That's where I did my hematology oncology training. And I've been working there for about six years. What, and um, I think you Cedar is a very well-known, very um, top, top-rated institution, right? What sort of patients? You said is all types of patients who come to you folks? Are they in certain stages or pre uh, predominantly a certain cancer type? Like who, who, what sort of patients do you see? So we see like a diverse patient population, all ethnicities, all ages, um, all different stages of cancer, a lot of early stages, but also a lot of like late stages that are metastatic patients as well. Mm -hmm. Got it. And so as you, as you see those different uh, patients come through, is there... Um, you know, a certain reason that many of them are coming to Cedars? Like, what, what are they, like, wh what do you think you, those patients are coming to you folks? Um, I mean, a lot of them, like, live in L.A. and they have multiple hospitals to go to. Right. Sometimes they're getting, like, second, third opinions. Um, in oncology, it's very common to get multiple opinions. They want to go to a place that's academic. So the good thing about my practice is that it's both pri private and academic. Mm -hmm. um, so we have access to many research trials. So for patients, for example, in late stages, like stage four patients, we have a lot of options for them. Maybe when another doctor says, hey, I ran out of options. We can start looking into trials for them as well. So um, a few of the questions I always uh, ask uh, doctors kind of on the behalf of the patients is, let's say a patient is coming in and it's going to be their first visit. Um, and they're coming in or they're newly, maybe they're newly diagnosed and they're coming for a second opinion. What what should a patient be thinking about or trying to do to be ready? Like what what is, how do you get the most um, from your visit? Um, uh, when they first come in, what's what's most important for them? So the good thing is that we try to ease the burden on the patients. So we have new patient coordinators that contact the patient prior to their visit, um, and then they get all the information for the patients. So they gather all like progress notes that they've had before from other doctors, for example. They get their imaging, so all their CAT scans, MRIs. Um, they also get pathology reports that show us what type of cancer they have. So all that is done by the coordinators. So we tell them, they ask, hey, do I have to bring all my records? So we just get it for them to ease the burden, and they just have to show up pretty much to their visit. That's fantastic. I talk to so many patients, and, and when I see what they're doing, they actually carry around a binder. It's like yeah. a clipboard, almost like one of these old school clipboards, or yeah. usually it's a very large stack full of like every piece of information they've had because they've been going to so many different places. How, how long does it take your team to, to pull all that information together? How does, do, do you know? I mean, it's pretty quick. I think they're very well trained. There's like two pa new patient coordinators. So within a couple of days, like if a patient wants to see me the next day or a couple of days later, they will contact the hospital, get all the information. 
for the patients. Yeah. Yeah. And then if there's like extraneous stuff, they can bring it with them. But most of the time we have everything prepared so that I could read over everything and make the plan before I see the patient. Got it. So when you're making the plan, one of the things I often ask oncologists is the field of oncology is changing like really rapidly. Um, I, I mean, you know, and it's a pretty broad field, right? I mean, there's yes, a lot definitely. of specialties. There's yeah. general practice. How do you personally kind of keep up and keep up up to date? Um, sorry, I'm referring not to the company, but do you personally yeah. like how do you make sure that you're able to follow all these different um, different emerging technologies and different mm-hmm. therapeutic approaches, et cetera? What, how do you do that? So I try to go to conferences throughout the year. So there's different conferences for different types of cancer. And then there's one general conference called ASCO, American Mm -hmm. Society of Clinical Oncology, that has a conference like May-June time. Mm -hmm. So um, even if I can't go to that, I try to tune in and read the abstracts at least, you know, and uh, keep up to date with articles. A lot of places they send you articles about like the latest research or the latest FDA-approved drugs, and it'll come straight to my email so Mm -hmm. I can read it so it's basically conferences and reading various articles to keep up to date so i've been to asco and the last asco i went to i have to say i spent more time trying to navigate the crowds if i was going the wrong way i was a little bit like a salmon trying to swim up river than actually go the other way yeah and massive presentations and there were thousands and thousands of presentations um at those so it's a huge amount of information so just thinking about that and thinking, you know, you're consuming that as an expert, as a medical practitioner, um, how should patients think about that sort of information that's out there? And how do they, how can they consume that? Because you're going to be giving them advice and talking to them about what's really in some cases a life or death decision, right, that they need to make with you. And yeah. and so how do they prepare for, for this? What, what, what are some tips? So a lot of patients, they do Google MD, and I tell them try not to do that because they get very overwhelmed and panicky. So I just tell them to ask me questions. We have an online portal where you can email your doctor directly. So they email me with various questions um, after the visit. Um, I try to give them patient handouts on like side effects of drugs, for example, and go over that with them. We also have in our group chemo teaching, so they learn from a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a pharmacist everything about their protocol Mm -hmm. that they're going to be on. But most of the time, I tell them to just direct the questions to me because the internet, you don't know what to filter and what not to filter. So it's easier for them to to relieve their anxiety about it. So even after you give them advice, I I assume some still go and use Dr. Google and and come back. Um, As you think about that and... And you think about what's good or bad. Do, do you ever learn things from them uh, that come through? Like they've found yeah. things that, yeah. No, I definitely learn from them. I mean, a lot of the times just practicing in West LA, Beverly Hills area, a lot of the patients seek out like naturopaths or alternative medicine doctors, and they want to know how that can add to their treatment or subtract from their treatment. So I learn a lot of things and then it's time to like kind of not like necessarily correct the patient, but just see like how we can incorporate their wishes with what the standard of care is. Right. You know, just being in like the patient population I'm with. So when we talk about standard of care and the fact that you also have a research hospital, one of the things that I always think about is, you know, the technology is changing quickly. And I think about technology and oncology falling into kind of three broad um, categories. The first one I always think about is new drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And new therapeutic approaches, not necessarily drugs, but 
biotherapeutics and all sorts of custom vaccines, et cetera. There's this whole field of kind of emerging therapeutics. There's another bucket, which I always think of as diagnostics or biological information, mm -hmm. right? novel testing mechanisms. This could be anything from, um, I was talking with another guest about liquid biopsies, mm -hmm. right, and different biopsies and, and you know, tissue genomics and then mm -hmm. organoid growth platforms. And like, there's all this stuff that makes data, right, that just makes more data. Yeah. You need to interpret it. And then the last piece I think about is kind of information technology, right, which actually extends beyond there. So there's the technology that exists for us um, inside of hospitals, electronic medical record systems, there's custom applications, but then there's also social media and advocacy, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. like a knowledge sharing and exchange of data and information. As you think about those three things, kind of drugs and novel therapies, novel testing techniques, and then how that's communicated what do you think is having the biggest impact? So if you were excited about mm -hmm. new modalities of care or treatment, like what what's, do you think is the most exciting thing coming through the, the pipe for patients? You know, I think in oncology, the most important is doing personalized medicine, that not everybody gets the same treatment. You know, they compare with friends, well, my friend got this and I got that. So personalized medicine is just what it is, right? Are there biomarkers on their cancer, for example, that we can target you know, their cancer. So I think the like best thing that I've seen so far is probably all this genomic sequencing. So for example, if I have a stage four patient, I try at the beginning of their diagnosis to send their tissue for genomic sequencing and see, are there any targetable mutations? You know, so in the future, if we're past standard of care, then I have that mutation and I can find a research trial for them. So that's, you know, years ago, we didn't have this and patients even with metastatic cancer have been living for some of them for years longer or months longer or weeks longer than they should have lived before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know yeah. Uh, personalized and precision medicine is uh, incredibly powerful. You talked a little bit about getting into these clinical trials. Yeah. Um, how often do you see patients try to participate in clinical trials and are unable to? Because that's one of the things mm. we've heard from patients is that yeah. um, they might want to participate. They might even have some elements of the things they're looking for, but then there are other factors, right? Um, yeah. I always think of it, too sick, too healthy, wrong zip code, um, wrong something, wrong timing. Yeah. Um, and so I've heard a lot about that. How do you how do you handle those types of situations? Yeah, I mean, definitely it's about eligibility criteria. I mean, I recently had a patient that couldn't get into a trial because she has brain metastases that were not treated. So I said, okay, hey, let's treat it. And then I worked with the investigator on the trial and a month later she was able to get in the trial because we treated it. So if there's a way that we can kind of you know, work on the eligibility criteria. I try to do that before we get in a trial or we find maybe sometimes there's other standard of care options or some mutation that we can target. And I say, let's leave this till later because sometimes they do become eligible later. Or, you know, since I, you know, I'm in LA, sometimes I research for them if there's other hospitals with other trials that maybe they'll be eligible for. I say, hey, maybe you can go to UCLA, City of Hope, USC, let's try to find something there. And mm -hmm. I work with my research team. And mm -hmm. sometimes they can actually research that too. So do you at Cedars, do you have um, clinical trial matching systems? So when you look at the data about your patients, are you being recommended kind of trials that they might be eligible for? Because that's a big space in and of itself. But. Yeah. Actually, we incorporated in our exam rooms um, 
a barcode that you can scan and you can see what clinical trials we have at Cedars so I can easily in the room find it. Mm -hmm. But I also have my research coordinator. So if I know a patient is coming in that week, I'll email my research coordinator and say, please screen this patient and see if they're eligible for a trial so that when the patient comes, we're already prepared and we know what they'll be eligible for. Do you uh, ever uh, pursue things like expanded access or compassionate use programs, so kind of individual R&D or in, any of those types of mechanisms? I know they're, yeah. they're kind of out there. Is that something that Cedars does? Yeah, I've done compassionate use before. I mean, a lot of the times it does work, you know, if you document well and you give good progress yeah. notes and you make a good argument, it does. Um, sometimes we can get things off-label mm -hmm. for patients and it hasn't been approved yet. If we work with our pharmacy team, they're pretty good at doing that. They're kind of like the it's gatekeepers, <laughs> you know, of that. Wonderful. So uh, maybe just some questions for um, uh, patients who might be out there. So just generally coming in, it, it sounded like from earlier conversation, you see a fair number of, I think you told me, uh, breast cancer patients and colorectal cancer. What, or yeah, I see everything. Mm -hmm. I've seen, yeah, pancreatic, colon, breast, every, like, GI, all the things, yeah. All yeah. right. And so coming into those, a lot of people often ask me, like, is there, well, let's just take one of those, let's say it's um, uh, pancreatic cancer. Are there signs or symptoms people should be worried about? Do you see people come to you and you're like, well, I wish you'd just come a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. or if mm -hmm. you'd been paying attention more and then listening to the history, these are the type of things that you worry about. Yeah, for pancreatic cancer, it's usually jaundice. Mm -hmm. You can actually have painless jaundice. People think, oh, I have pancreatic cancer, I should have belly pain, but that may not be an initial symptom. So jaundice and unexplained weight loss, mm -hmm. you know. So I have had um, a patient where they lost, you know, 30, 40 pounds in a couple wow. months, and their primary care doctor said, good job, mm -hmm. um, instead of like raising an eyebrow. So you can have abdominal pain as well. So jaundice, abdominal pain, itching because your liver enzymes are getting affected. And then the weight loss is a big thing too. Got it. And uh, yeah, I was just going to say that's a lot of weight. So that's a heck of a exercise yeah. program that they, um, that they went on. So when patients um, kind of come in with their caregivers and they're trying to be prepared for the encounter and they're going on it, what sort of, um, and, and you told me already that you guys train them on like what to expect from chemotherapy, mm -hmm. et cetera. What? What can they do on their own to begin to understand um, beyond, you know, kind of reading the materials? Where, where should they look for kind of help and support in the community network? Do you, do you mm -hmm. have any? So we do actually, like whenever we have a new patient and they're going to go on treatment, the first day of treatment, we have them meet with the therapist or social worker plus the nutritionist mm -hmm. because they are always asking, what should I eat? What should I not eat? And they really need support and it's overwhelming. So we do have an M, like a marriage and family therapist and a social worker. Cool. And then the social worker connects them to support groups. So we do have support groups with other patients. And then there's also individualized because some patients, they actually don't don't want to talk about their cancer with other patients because mm -hmm. it gets them more scared and more fearful. So there's also one-on-one -on -one too. And then they find them people in the community to connect with. Got it. Yeah. You know, a lot of what um, we've been talking about on the show is patient advocacy and just how yeah. important it is. I mean, you actually bring up a great point. Maybe that's not for everyone. Some people don't want yeah. to be in those communities. I mean, mm -hmm. some people do. I'm guessing the people who are in them are the ones who want to participate yeah. in them. Do you, um, does this kind of world of social media and patient advocacy in these communities, does it end up reaching in to you? Like in some ways, do they, do you feel their impact um, in your relationships? 
Yeah, I actually just had a patient on Friday that found somebody on uh, social media on Facebook or something that's going through the same cancer as her. And now she's like having her on speakerphone during the visits because she's a patient advocate and she has stage four cancer. So it does like infiltrate. And I find a lot of patients are using social media to find support groups. And it's actually been helping them along through treatment. Some people find each other in the infusion center, you know, and then they become friends and they support each other. So definitely social media plays a big impact because everybody's on it. And that's how they reach out to find help and to find just support. I was just going to say, is that helpful, harmful, depends on the situation? Yeah, I think it depends on the situation because I've also had patients come and tell me things that were not necessarily true Mm -hmm. that they read on a blog somewhere. And then they come and ask me, hey, can I get this? Because I read it on such and such blog. And then I would have to provide them evidence to show them if that's harmful or beneficial or not. So it can be a double-edged sword for sure. So it sounds like this is really a curation issue in some ways of like, how do you know that? Um, just any advice as you kind of look at all of this information and keeping track of it, like how do you decide what's good or not good um, uh, from this information? In terms of treatment or the information? Just the information. Like yeah. if someone comes to you, it's maybe it's something that's new. I mean, there's always something that one of, you know you don't know, right, or something yeah. along those lines, and it's new. Like how, how do – and I'm really asking from the perspective of like a patient. Like I go on uh, websites. I go on Reddit, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm asking a bunch of questions and somebody puts a post up there and I'm like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. They're like, how do I, how, how can I be discerning about this type of information? You know, I do like, I try to base it on evidence, right? So oncology is a lot about evidence-based medicine and medicine in general. Mm -hmm. So if I don't find evidence for it, I will tell them, hey, I have not found the evidence for that I'm willing to go research it for you and come back with it and I do and I'll tell them frankly you know if that's beneficial or harmful for them and they usually trust I think a lot of patients they look to their oncologist as even like their primary cares and they do trust and they um, appreciate the fact that I'll go research it for them so you're not dismissing like what they'd like to do for example if they come and tell me hey I want to use I don't know CBD for my treatment. I right. will go find some research. I'll tell them if it doesn't harm your treatment, go ahead and do it, you know, mm-hmm. so that they feel like it's a relationship that we're forming and not me telling them you have to do this and this. Yeah. You, you know? brought it up earlier. I think for where you're practicing the country, you get a lot of people are interested in alternative therapies yes. and what they do. And, yeah. um, I, I've, um, often thought that some of these things sound very interesting, but there's very little evidence in many of these cases exactly. because you know, a lot of evidence production comes from when a company is producing, like, let's say, medications or something new and a lot of novel drugs. The biopharmaceutical companies have a lot of money and incentive to produce good evidence. They have to, otherwise they can't market their product. But a lot mm-hmm. of these other um, potential treatments, they just don't have that financial rationale behind them. And so the evidence is much sparser, Right. Um, though I think a lot of that's been better studied. Am I understanding this correctly? There's more evidence now than there used to be in... Yeah. I mean, for natural, like natural paths and alternative medicine, there is actually some studies, like for example, there's studies on acupuncture, for example, improving, you know, nerve pain, Mm -hmm. like numbness, joint pains, hot flashes. So there are studies like that. There's studies about exercise. There's studies about sugar now, Mm -hmm. you know, and they've been presented at conferences that I've gone to. And I think patients really appreciate when we present that in the clinic, because that's their number one, their goal, Mm -hmm. Google, oh, I shouldn't eat this much sugar or I shouldn't drink this much 
you know, and everything is complementary, and obviously, like that does impact, you know, health as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually recently worked with a company that's um, working on novel medical foods, and by medical mm-hmm. foods, I often think of medical food as you know something you might take in an ICU, let's say, or yeah. something like yeah. that. But this is actually looking at the impact of overall diet on your prognosis, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's really fascinating. To me, and, and it's kind of obvious, right, just from a basic understanding yeah. of biology that, you know, you kind of are what you eat. And so yeah. if you're changing the way that you eat, you might change the way that you metabolize, the way that mm-hmm. your body uh, functions and that sort of stuff. So I, I'm imagining you hear a lot of this sort of stuff um, yeah. coming through. A- any examples of stuff you've seen work really, really well? Um, you said the acupuncture. Yeah, um, acupuncture has worked well. There's some studies about like vitamin D, mm-hmm. you know, can um, like help prevent like recurrence of like breast cancer, for example. Like, you know, or should I take aspirin to prevent colon cancer? There's a lot of studies like that, you know, that are out there which patients have used these things, you know, and it's been helpful. Yeah, wonderful. That was interesting. I've heard the vitamin D one. I wasn't sure. Does it actually prevent? For estrogen positive breast cancers, there are some data, you know, showing that prevent recurrence if you've already had breast cancer before. How do, um, you know, often patients, and I'm thinking maybe of some of the more debilitating cancers here, and particularly like brain cancers Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, it's very serious. And the patients undergoing therapy for this type of cancer often have, you know, they need a lot of help um, Mm -hmm. and supportive care. So it's often the family and the caregivers uh, who come through there. Do you find yourself spending a lot of time with the caregivers of the patients as well? And edgy? like, how is that interaction? Yeah, I actually do. So even like during COVID, it's been difficult because they say no visitors during COVID. But I actually have made the exception that especially for the first visit, you can bring your caregiver because it's a lot of information. And I think the family member caregiver is as important as the patient because they're going through it too. And, you know, they're the ones that are being responsible at home for the patient. So I've actually spent a lot of time on the phone with family members, caregivers, because they don't know what to do at home when things, you know, like a patient with brain cancer, what do I do when there's cognitive decline or they're weak and they can't speak well. So I do spend a lot of time with them too. I've been through this with my own family. We go to a doctor's visit and you get home and your family member asks you, so what happened? Yeah. Right. What what was going yeah. on? And and um, because it's very personal to them, it's just much easier to be supportive yeah. um, uh, around them. So I guess coming back now then to technology, it sounds like there's some things you like or don't like. If you had to pick one thing, you think that's you said like precision medicine, mm-hmm. that's a great thing. Technology. If there's something you really don't like about technology, right? If you like, yeah. I wish we would just stop <laughs> doing this altogether. Like forget it. Yeah. Uh, what what would that be? Um, I mean, I can speak for in COVID, this telemedicine thing. Uh, there's been a lot of telemedicine, and I think it has good things, but it also has some drawbacks. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you lose the relationship over video or a phone visit with the patient. There's technical difficulties. They can't hear you, and you're discussing something extremely important with them, like a new chemotherapy regimen or a scan that doesn't look good you know, and they want to do a video appointment, I think sometimes you lose like the personal relationship. So it's been a little bit difficult, like in COVID to do that, you know, with the telemedicine. I mean, it's good for patients that live far away, Mm -hmm. I would say. And some people like that if they're just going over results. But in oncology, I feel like face to face, 
you know, really goes far in beyond like a video call or a phone call. And what a crazy time with the pandemic as well, where, yeah. you know, we've basically seen healthcare resources, which were already very stretched, right? Yeah. Really consumed. And it leaves something like oncology. I mean, I was, I was talking to a couple of uh, other uh, practitioners and what they, we were talking about is like, what's going to happen now that, and I think we were starting to do this, what happened when routine screening kind of comes back? Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people skipped for a long time. Yeah. Right. If you think about it on the aggregate level, all of this yeah. routine screening. And so are we now going to see kind of a bolus of new cancer diagnoses come through and even worse, later stage diagnoses? Yeah. Right. Than we might have seen if they'd been earlier. Have you seen any sign? Yeah. Of that? No, that's or? definitely been happening. Exactly what you said. So people are not getting their mammograms. They're not getting their colonoscopies. They're not getting physical exams because they're too scared to go out during COVID. And now, like when it the vaccines are out and it's kind of dying, been dying down. There's an influx of patients. I've even talked to the radiologists and they said there's an influx of so much imaging now to the pathologists. Like everybody has just become busier because right. people suddenly now are all going to the doctor. Like, well, now it's time to go. It's been like two, almost two years. I better go to my doctor. Yeah, so definitely we've seen that. I've seen a lot of like higher stages too mm -hmm. recently, you know, that we've had to treat. And maybe like if they got their colonoscopy, their mammogram, maybe we could have avoided that, mm -hmm. you know, so screening is so important. And you guys weren't busy before, right? Um, I mean, we were always busy in our practice, but you know, when it's like up here, and you're like down here. Yeah. So it's definitely been crazy yeah. recently. One of the things we always talk about is there's, you know, there's only 13,000 oncologists like you in the whole country. So it's, yeah. it's uh, thank you for being here and spending your, your time with us and, and this audience, but just the enormous kind of amount of work that has to be done. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I spend a bunch of time thinking about is, is how does technology, right, really make the human beings more effective? I, I am personally not a believer that we're going to be replacing humans anytime soon, right? Yeah. Uh, and to your point, the the nature of care and interaction is actually a human-human interaction, right? Mm -hmm. But if we don't have enough resources, how are we going to solve this problem? And I think that it's yeah. just a it's wonderful opportunity to be really creative around communication and application, Um of technology. So wonderful. Definitely. So if you had one last message to say to any patients who are out there who are, who are going through this journey, yeah. uh, what what's your single thing you'd say you're a cancer patient? You should. You should definitely ask your doctor all the questions that you'd like without Googling things, yes. I think. And also ask them for resources for support because people would be surprised about how much support there is out there that no one knows about. Well, wonderful, yeah. Mary. Thank you so much. Thank hey, you. Thank you for coming on uh, Target Cancer. You're welcome. Really thank helpful. you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. If you or someone you know has advanced cancer and needs to make a treatment decision soon, please click on the link in the description and sign up for the X-Cure's free options and information service.